The following podcast contains explicit language. What's good, everyone? You're listening to the Post Bougie Podcast, episode number 33. I am Gene Demby, but everyone calls me GD. I'm the proprietor and editor of Post Bougie. I'm a correspondent at NPR at the day job. I'm here with my play cousin, Taryn Hall, with my co-host, who's up to Hey, everybody. We always joke about how she ain't got no job. She actually is <laughs> uh, newly employed, or she will be. She's moving to Detroit and leaving us here on the East Coast. Sad face. I'm really excited, though. You should be. Um, it gets really cold in the winter, though. That's fine. I mean, I've lived in cold places before. Yeah, I'll just get a down blanket and a, find a snuggly guy. I'll be good. If you're a snuggly guy and you're out there listening, you can <laughs> to holler at us at, oh, at PostBougie on Twitter. Um, Taryn is not very discriminating. Oh, you got to be light-skinned. Um, oh, uh, my God, Gene. <laughs> you are really going to think that's true. It's not true. Also, we have two very special guests with us today. One of my favorite people in the world, my boy Sawatsu Moore. He is my friend from Brooklyn and a Detroit native. Hi. What's going on? <laughs> so enthused. Uh, That's the D way, man. They're all laid back. They are mad laid back. Right I'm now, just, like chill. You can't see, but Sawatsu is wearing some uh, red gaiters right now. Um, and uh, <laughs> also with us is our post bougie blog mate, play cousin, the author of the acclaimed Turner House, uh, Angela Florinoy. She was my old lunch buddy back when she was in DC, uh, and now she's out uh, doing the damn thing. So welcome, Angela. Hi. Angela's novel has been met with uh, rave reviews, and it is set in Detroit. You might notice a theme here. We are going to be talking about Detroit. So, Taryn is moving to Detroit. Obviously, Detroit is the blackest city in America. It's been the hub of so much African-American culture. And, Um, I mean, you could also say American culture, right? I'm certain. Because of the industries that have been there, so. Absolutely. Um, Obviously, as we all know, Detroit has fallen upon rougher times over the last uh, 15, 20 years or so. More like 50, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 (laughs) But it's coming back. Oh, because you're going there. Taryn's going to be there, exactly. I know, exactly, right? <laughs> so we're actually going to talk about the D. Shut up, Taryn. We're going to talk about the D. Uh, and what is happening there. We want to sort of take a big picture, a small picture, look at the blackest city in America. So, Taryn, do you, um, did you have any sort of reservations about having to move to, to Detroit? Not really. My introduction to Detroit came, um, my best friend is from Detroit. She's from uh, the Boston Edison area. Fancy. That's fancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's she's, uh, I mean, she's a fancy. That's yeah. where Barry Gordy's mansion is. Oh, that. So you hanging out with like balling ass Negroes? I mean, not all the time, but like when. And then I also, I should admit, I dated a guy that was from Detroit. And so every time I visited, I always had fun. Um, mm-hmm. it, <laughs> I bet you did. Yeah, bet but you it did. was like every, like every time I went there, the people were always cool. The food was good. Um, there was stuff going on, and like I, whenever I would be like, oh yeah, I'm going to Detroit, people would be like, oh. Detroit, why would you go there? But it's like, it seemed cool to me. You know, most families and mine's was not very different. We all migrated out from the South. Mm-hmm. So there's still more than just a touch of Southern uh, culture in Detroit. There and you go, Terrence. See, there you go, country. Most yeah. people that, you know, it's funny, when I first moved to New York, most people, I was a teacher and in the classroom, the kids were, you know, where are you from? Are you from down South or something? <laughs> like, they would ask me to pronounce individual words and just kind of like clown on me because of my perceived drawl but i ever thought that the i thought midwest accents were the most um you know clean accent out there but mm-hmm. yeah, not. no not yeah, Detroit. Really like other parts of the midwest maybe but. not yeah don't say <laughs> not don't say car be. go into the car car 
My best friend's name is Ashley, and I always do an impersonation of her. My name is Ashley Carter. But yeah, no, I have family. My grandmother's from Mississippi, and one of her sisters moved up there, too. And I have, like, a bunch of other relatives who are from, like, the South that live there. So it's, like, a place that's not, like, outside of the constellation of my imagination of places that people will live. So watch was an expat, as it were. Um, but so was Angela's father. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. he grew up in the D. And that was sort of, I mean, obviously you'd go back to Detroit when you were growing up um, mm-hmm. to go to the places that your father had been. You said you're novel in Detroit in part because of your familial connection to, to that place. Yeah, I think um, especially of his generation, uh, my dad's generation, there's a lot of uh, people who moved out of Detroit who didn't necessarily want to move out of Detroit. They moved mm-hmm. out of Detroit because uh, my dad, you know, he graduated in like the early 70s and most of his friends, it's like if you didn't want to have like a sort of kind of grueling job in the audio in industry, mm-hmm. you were either going to be uh, an entrepreneur on the streets <laughs> or, or you joined the military. And so him and uh, four of his siblings joined the military with him. Um, oh, I believe there's such thing as like a sort of like DR, Detroit uh, diaspora, specifically from that generation, like kind of post-60s generation um, that they didn't really necessarily see how they could stay. Of course, for every person who left, there were people who stayed as is always the case. And, you know, when you kind of leave not by choice, it sort of colors the way you think about a place and you think about it probably even more nostalgically and uh, kind of wistfully. Mm-hmm. And so I know that was communicated to me like my whole life. Right. And a lot of my friends who are actually the children of immigrants say that their parents have this idea of the place they had to leave because their parents left, you know, not necessarily of their own volition. In a lot of cases, they were, like, you know, refugees or whatever. Their parents had this, like, very fixed idea of what the place they left was, right? They have this very yeah. crystallized and amber, right? And it's a beautiful mm-hmm. place and, you know, and, like, they want to go back, but not to the place that actually exists today, but this place that exists in their memory. Yeah, definitely. And so I think when I was old enough to sort of, like, observe, I realized that every single time we went back, he would have to drive around and take stock of just what was still there and what wasn't there, um, mm-hmm. especially where he grew up. He grew up on the, the east side, um, not that far from uh, Kettering High School, uh, if that means anything to you, Sawatu. Um, yes, it does. And, <laughs> and nothing was still there, really, uh, quite frankly, like not much, but he would still kind of like have to have to do that. And then it was very important to him to recreate landmarks. And it's not the way that like, you know, I might tell my kid one day, like, that was a, that was a blockbuster. <laughs> you don't know what that is. <laughs> you know, and now it's Starbucks but like in a very sort of like I was baptized where there is nothing but a field like sort right. of things that you don't think are going to change you know like churches and things like that and, and so watch I mean you've been out of the, the D for like more than a decade now right I'll typically kind of do what uh, Angela's father does and just sort of drive around and, and kind of see take stock and see what what's managed to cling on because that I mean that's really it's been sort of a war of attrition between nature and and civilization in certain parts of the city. But I, I also think there's a way that because of... That was one thing I tried to make sure of with my novel, um, because of uh, how important his memory is to the city, and that's, like, so tied to his memory, that he is not really able to see, like, kind of change in a good way. Like, he's not really able to see improvements. And, like, mm-hmm. no shade to my dad, because that might happen to anybody who's... 62 and is going back to somewhere they used to live but um um but you know there are certainly like positive changes and taryn probably is able to see those more than my father of course because he has all this like you know these like decades and decades of history Mm -hmm. so for like sawatu when you've gone back and seen like some things changed. So, for example, you said, like, I was saying, oh, like, I wanted to live in Midtown, but it was 90% occupied. Um, 
how do you perceive those changes that like the pot the things that look like positive changes places being filled with people and like businesses coming to the area how do you perceive those things as a person who's not there anymore especially as a person from new york and i think angela you posted this on your instagram there was like a sign you saw on a bridge it said move to detroit right yes. Yeah. like yes how do you how do you feel about i mean type of- it's it's very mixed uh, in the sense that you know my family has been there for several generations and um so they're part of that stubborn six seven hundred thousand people that that kind of just refused to go. Um, whereas you have people like uh, Mike Illich and Dan Gilbert, the billionaires that are kind mm-hmm. of trying, you know, I, I don't look at them as a negative force necessarily. You know, Dan Gilbert brought in, you know, 25,000 jobs or something. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. they weren't new jobs because he was just relocating people from outside the city into the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, it won't go a long way towards helping the people that are the most desperate. But the question becomes, when you say you want to save the city, what does that mean? You right. know, do, are you trying yes. to save the people? Or are you trying to save the actual physical infrastructure plus the spirit of what the city has been and what it will be in the future? And, and frankly, you know, I don't, I don't know if you ever can save what, what it, what we wanted it to be as, as opposed to what it's going to have to become now. Um, so I look at a lot of the new developments, especially around Midtown and downtown, um, in, a, in a positive light because it doesn't just impact you know the white gentrifiers. It, there's they're bringing in all they're bringing in whoever will come basically. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you know you have a, a city that has a, a great deal of vacant space that needs to be occupied because um, you have to rebuild your tax base, and if you don't do that, it, you know it's all a lost cause. So, Taryn, do you feel like you're on the you're doing like revitalization work? Do you feel like you are going to be helping abet this? I I don't, mm. and maybe I understand where people can be defensive about that, right? But I also think like I'm excited to be in the place, so I don't I don't look at it as I look at it as a bad thing to like be moving to this place as a place of opportunity. I think having heard like a lot of the negative things that people say about Detroit. And I think just having a friend that's from Detroit and talking to her about it and talking to other people about it, I think there can be a defensiveness where, where people think like only people only want to talk about the bad things going on in Detroit. And if I can contribute to being something good that's happening there, then I don't, I don't feel bad about it at all. For me growing up there, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't really understand the negative image of Detroit until I left. And you know, neither I, did I. And I didn't like, grow up there. <laughs> but I mean, because it's not like growing up, you know, I was telling Jean this before. My mom never put boundaries, said you can only ride your bike four square blocks. You know, I was able to go anywhere I wanted to in the city and it never felt dangerous. And it's not as if these stories weren't there about people getting shot or you know, violent things happening, but it was similar to, you know, anybody that's lived in a major city. Like if you lived Mm -hmm. in New York and you hear, oh, five people got stabbed in the Bronx and you're like, well, I don't live in the Bronx and I don't (laughs) in that neighborhood. So that's, you know, that's another part that is is sort of separate from me. You know, I grew up in a very working class neighborhood where, you know. What neighborhood did you grow in, Sawatsky? I grew up on the west side um, near Mumford High School. It was just a, a big working class neighborhood or uh, Angela, you were talking about the industry that people were in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty much a good four out of five of my family members all worked in some capacity for the auto industry. And those that didn't were entrepreneurs. Like my mom has a beauty salon. My auntie is a seamstress. You know, it's, it's like those were... Those are legitimate entre- entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have some of the other kind too, but <laughs> <laughs> kind of positive. Um, and so like 
I remember you saying before that the Turner House, the actual house that is one of the characters essentially in the book, like it actually is based on a real street mm-hmm. in Detroit, right? I mean, it's not it's the street. The street is a is a fictional name, but you know in your head where that street. Yeah, is. like I know in the in the head, it's sort of you know it's based on the house like my father grew up in, mm-hmm. and um, I know like the street on in the in the story is fictional, but. Yeah, if you're very familiar with the East Side, then you could probably, if you cared that much, uh, like sort of retroactively figure out where it is. That part of the city, it's it's very interesting because it's not that far from like Midtown and we're all like, uh, Taryn, you said it's 90% occupied over there. Yeah. Um, Every time I would try to like look for an apartment, people were like, oh, we're all full. We have a two year waiting list. And I'm like, dang. But I thought I was going to show up and be like, I got money. Let me buy. Let me get an oh, apartment. No, no, no. What's the, um... They were like, no, no, boo boo, and you and I had to <laughs> hustle my little buns and find a, a decent place. To... What is Midtown? Like... Is that Jefferson Avenue near the water or something? No, no. that's that's like Rivertown, it's like Jefferson, Woodward, right? Yeah. And, uh, so Woodward, uh, like you know where like Woodward and Cass and Second oh, Avenue God. around Wayne it's State. Like a, a area now, like you have no idea like how. No, it was, um, yeah, it's a thing now. <laughs> it was just, it, it was, there was nothing there. Mm-hmm. Like, imagine if you were to walk down Broadway in Manhattan and, like, everything was shuttered except for Dwayne Reed. Like, that's how Woodward was for a long time. Wow. Would they? I mean, it's like, Wayne State is, a, like, where Wayne State is, they built out mm-hmm. a lot of stuff around there. So it's like... They got the Whole Foods and... Yeah, they got Whole Foods. They have some really, like, cute apartment buildings. They have, like, some cool bars and, like, coffee shops, like, that are not... Uh, there's a Starbucks there, but they have, like, other, like, locally-based uh, coffee shops and like Thai foods shops and ice cream shops and stuff like that. So oh, that's, that's just crazy. In a good it's... way, you know, in a good way. It's just very different from what I grew up. Um, Cause over there is like near Cass corridor. Mm-hmm. That, that was like skid row, you know, it was like wow. where we had one of our, one of our best high schools, Cass tech was over there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was also just stone's throw from a bunch of um, clinics and, you just saw all types of spectrum of human misery over there, but you know they've done a lot to clean up those areas. It's, it's pretty amazing. I remember when uh, when Angel was first re- researching her book. I remember we were in a, some sushi place. It was funny because like I feel like uh, over the process of researching the book, you were like becoming more and more militant, uh, just oh, as you were doing more explaining yeah. the history <laughs> of housing in Detroit. Because mm-hmm. um, you like you were going in like it's real that you have to kind of contend with. Um like sort of this ideal this like idealized view of what you want like a city to be and Mm -hmm. kind of like the nuts and bolts of like do you want the city kind of to survive but i think that in specifically i'm just very kind of sensitive the history of detroit is one in which like it's a history of exclusion like it's a history of like you know there was like a pretty um you know impressive at black middle class, but it was, it was like this really delicate moment in time and things sort of like shifted really quickly. But a lot of that had to do with, um, you know, Jean, one of your favorite hobby horses, which is housing, <laughs> housing segregation. Yes. Housing segregation. Housing segregation and so and when, you know, I hear that Midtown is 90% occupied, sort of the, the glass half empty person in me, which hi, sometimes I'm that person is like, well, what's the demographics over there? Like, cause every time I go over there, like for instance, if I go to, what's the name of that bakery? Is it Avalon right there um, by Wayne state? 
I don't see no black people. And so <laughs> I just worry about, um, Taryn, did you read that article that was in the New York Times um, yeah. earlier in the month about like how, how Detroit is the last stop off the L train? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I did read that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and wait, uh, what is wait? Detroit is the last stop of the L train. Explain what this. What is this? Yes, <laughs> they were like, talking about how people wish, were. Wish. Oh, they were just uh, talking about how people were moving to Detroit. Like a lot of people were looking at it as like a place to be, like mm-hmm. leaving New York because it's affordable. There's like a lot of really interesting things happening there. Um, and you can really be an entrepreneur and like, but it, it, it focused a little bit on, it focused mostly on sort of like artists mm-hmm. and um, creative class, white yeah, folks. And people who had like $10,000 or more in their pocket kind of going to be paraphrasing. But I remember that dream Hampton said something like, if you find yourself in Detroit and you're around all white people, you're basically having a curated experience, like being mm-hmm. on a Kenyan safari or something like wow. you're not, that's not like what should be organically happening in a city that's over 80% black, mm-hmm. you know? That feeling yeah. is very real. Um, you know, when I, like I say, I go back a couple of times a year, and my uncle is a reverend at one of the, one of the older churches there. It's like a Pan African Christian Orthodox Black Panther type oh. church. <laughs> that, um, oh my! What? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. but, well, you know, Karen, you just found your new church. <laughs> oh no! I'm. I think I might. They might yeah, like you, expel you me. <laughs> He was just saying, you know, the long-time residents, they don't see what Mike, do, uh, Mike Duggan, the, um, the mm-hmm. new mayor, who's also the first white mayor in over 40 years, I think. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't think he really represents them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but like I said, it's, it's one of those things where I look at the, the picture of the city and I, I really don't know outside of a, a sort of a Marshall plan, like for the poorer residents, what you do. Uh, you know, I heard a stunning statistic. Um, I was listening to some people talk about the bankruptcy of Detroit. And a guy was, when he, he was an economist or a sociologist or something, he said, um, you know, when we look at the workforce of different cities, one metric you look at is like the ratio of adults with a bachelor's to those without a high school degree. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and some of our, in the best city that, you know, the the city that has a really high ratio was like Seattle and it was eight to one. So, wow. you know, eight adults with a BA versus, you know, didn't graduate high school. Okay. And in Detroit, that ratio was 0.5 to one. Damn. Uh, wow. um, so, and when I hear statistics about like 50% adult illiteracy, which I, you know, I take with the oh. you know, modicum of salt um, because I, that seems incredibly high. Mm-hmm. Though when you look at, you know, decades of failing schools, it's not impossible to think that not necessarily like, I can't, I don't know my ABCs, but can you fill out a tax form right. level literacy? Right. It's, it's definitely possible. So I, you know, I, I really scratch my head and, and, and try to figure out, well, what, what will it take, you know, some sort of massive influx of, you know, dollars that are put towards education. Cause that's, I mean, that's really the only facet I can see that you can, you know, the only way you can attack the problem because you still have these people that are going to be here. Mm-hmm. 600,000 Detroiters, you know, half of whom live beneath the poverty line, mm-hmm. they're not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, they, mm-hmm. they own their homes for the most part. Maybe they don't have water, but they're not, mm-hmm. they're not leaving. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you have to contend with that unless it's just going to be this walled city of Midtown and then, you know, yeah. 
everything Which in, in that, at that case, it's like, then why don't you just, that's no difference kind of than like, you know, Gross Point Park. They've been trying to like figure out how to put a physical barrier between them yeah. and like the city of Detroit. So that wouldn't necessarily be kind of changing. What So with Detroit being like this new New Detroit becoming this place where people come like is a land of opportunity. You can mm-hmm. be, you know, a, a young startup, a young whippersnapper, um, a young tenderoni like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I am thirty, but I'm still a tenderoni to somebody. Um, but no, like I wonder how like the suburbs surrounding Detroit are, like how their relationships change with the city. I don't know. I feel like there's like this new vibe there that like it's not like a place to like turn your back on anymore. But now you're getting into the, the the deep racial politics of the whole thing because that that is you know Detroit, you know, started to fail way before the riots of 67. You know, it was, mm-hmm. a, it was a one horse town and that horse left. Mm-hmm. And it's not coming back. And the mayor, you know, Coleman Young, his honor was never able uh to build a relationship with the suburbs which were predominantly white. Um and so you have the you had this antagonism between municipalities where the suburbs were like we got ours forget you and you're going to fend for yourself and mm-hmm. so now that it's becoming you know more acceptable for white folks to be there you could see a thawing of that relationship however long term residents of Detroit don't forget you know they're they're not going to forget what the past was. Um, and shout out to Abubakar Jai, who is friend of the blog, who wrote a piece for us at Code Switch about sort of the why why you can't stop gentrification, about like, so there's not really a lot of policy uh, interventions you can do to sort of slow gentrification, because once people decide that a place is a livable, desirable place, a desirable place to live, um, then there becomes competition. And obviously, Detroit right now still has a lot of open space, right? Um, mm-hmm. A lot a lot of open space, right? But then you start having places in, inside of Detroit in which there is competition for, right? I mean, you, you guys were saying this mid, like midtown area, mm-hmm. um, that was 90% occupancy, right? And so you start to have um, housing prices always sort of, like once a place is desirable, housing, housing prices go up and you can't really put downward pressure on housing prices. Once they, I mean, what, yeah, housing costs once a place becomes a desirable place to live, um, which is why, you know, in a city like New York, um, you know, where it's like really densely populated, there's almost nothing you can do to sort of reduce the cost of housing because there's enough, there's not, there's, you know, there's not enough housing stock for the people who want to live there. Um, well, and it might be... the same that happened in Detroit. There's a riot. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. You have a population that the, the people that didn't leave, that have been there for generations, they, there is no relief for them in sight. They're still, you know, they're not the ones that are coming into the city with money. They're waiting for industry to come in. They, they need you know, it, there has to be a plan besides just transport, you know, successful people into the city. There's got to be something for the people that already live there or they're just going to become more alienated and, and worse off. There's something that, I don't know, I'm not obviously a city planner, but there's something that I find sort of makes me kind of like itchy when I, when I read these, um, I can't remember exactly where I read it, maybe it was Washington Post two months ago um, about how people who move to Detroit and they stay for more than two years, they get these incentives to buy homes. So it's like, in, a, in some sense, the city um, is willing to kind of just like toss money at these people to come here, to, I mean, to come to Detroit. And then I just wonder... Why well, can't toss money at the people who are... Yeah. <laughs> there, I mean, obviously there's, like, you know, there's less sort of um, investment they have to put into these people because these people have degrees that they got elsewhere. They have these skills that they got elsewhere. Sure. Um, and then they have this sort of like earning potential, which, you know, will transfer into like 
you know, tax base. But I guess that's maybe me being idealistic, but I, I do like, that's the only thing it's specifically in Detroit. Like um, when we talk about kind of like how you can't sort of prevent gentrification, right? What's happening at Detroit, right? In Detroit right now is not even that it's just like everybody is coming and there's no reason, like they're encouraging gentrification. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's not like, something in the air shifted so it's if you are willing to sort of monetarily like incentivize gentrification then shouldn't you have a little bit more control over it i don't know maybe i'm out of my realm when you say nothing shifted i think but didn't everything shift like after they went into bankruptcy like that Mm -hmm. seems like a pretty big thing to to have to contend with on like a city level Mm -hmm. And, and like the idea that they would be willing to like just and maybe I'm being defensive because I'm excited. I'm like the young person that's coming in with a bu- two degrees and like not a lot of money, but mm-hmm. you know, a lot uh, of cultural capital and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm probably being defensive to that, but I'm also I also understand because I'm a person of color, so it like doesn't it doesn't necessarily look like it on the outside, but mm-hmm. like I would be one of those people that would be able to take advantage of those housing um, those housing incentives, right? Because I, the the possibility of owning in a place like D.C. or New York is just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I just want to push back against, like, you know, even in, you know, D.C., they'll be like, yeah, that's like a, a, a place that people would like to use as an example of, like, you can't really stop gentrification, but it's like the city of D.C. incentivized it. Like, they incentivized these, uh, you know, these big, like, apartment structures. They gave these people tax breaks. So it's not that it was just, like, in New York, there's just not enough space. So eventually like you're going to be next, but in a city that um, has taken steps to sort of like attract people, I feel like that's sort of an easy way for them to kind of wash their hands later. Once the ball gets rolling and you have 90% occupancy in like an area to be like, it is what it is. You know what I mean? But how do you, how do you then, how do you incentivize people to live in a place, especially a place you, I mean, that is, has housing stock that is like not being used. How do you incentivize people to move there without sort of also having this like ripple effect of, um, spilling out to the. You don't necessarily have to. I mean, that's a track that you chose to take. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like I said, Dan Gilbert, when he moved the, this compuware um, down into downtown, I think one of the incentives they gave was like they would offer people something upwards of twenty thousand dollars and forgive mm-hmm. loans, you know, to come and buy property there. Um, so it, you're you're saying you know you're putting a value on the type of people that you're bringing in, and you know the people that are there already. The, you know, you say okay, well. They're out of bankruptcy now, so doesn't that mean a fresh start? Well, yes and no. I mean, yeah, you paid off all your creditors, but your structural deficiencies are still there. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you have a small tax base and a large amount of public services that you have to provide. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of people that are still on, you know, public assistance and need city assistance. So these things aren't going to go away. You just it's like I ran up fifty thousand in credit card debt, and then I made it zero. But then I go out shopping again the next day with no job. I mean, eventually it's going to build itself back up again. Right. If, if there is no underlying change to the infrastructure, and it, that that just hasn't happened, I, I haven't seen that plan on the table. You know, you have people that have a hard time. Like my mom has a beauty salon in Detroit, and you know her trash doesn't get picked up by the city, and she's not like in the outskirts of Detroit. She's in, uh, you know, relatively you know, within the confines of the city and you have to pay a private contractor to come pick up the trash. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. that doesn't happen in, in most cities, you know, where you have to deal with these types of problems. When you talk about the, like 
uh, infrastructure change. Does that mean like sh- like what does that mean exactly? What would that look like? Is that shrinking the city? Does it like does that mean? Yeah, I mean you like- have to, you really have to physically shrink this. Like somebody pointed out, you know, Detroit is like 140 square. It is miles. just way too big. Yeah, yeah. and it, it you know yeah like Angela was talking about you know our dad grew up on the east side like east side west side people in Detroit that's two different cities practically like if you're on yeah. the west side you never go to the east side and vice versa so you know you have all these people spread out. And there's just not, there's literally logistically not enough money to provide services to all these people in a reasonable way. I mean, does that mean you split the city in two? Does it mean you like <laughs> you cut it in half? Does it mean, I mean, you I mean, can't... you have to do combination of like eminent domain, you buy people out, you try to relocate. Like if there was a plan to like relocate the people to a different area that kind of, you know, put everything in concentrated into one area and made it more dense that would be one way to go. But is there incentive? Is there money to do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, they've got like hundreds of millions to knock down blighted houses, but how about just taking intact families and moving them to upgraded housing stock somewhere where it's all closer and we can just kind of let the other parts of the city until they are ready to be used, just kind of lie fallow. But mm-hmm. I don't see that plan on the table. Um, I know that there is a, uh, the bad things, forgive me, when you're like on book tour, people talk to you about stuff, but then they all sort of like, I mean, not, uh, Sawati, when you come to talk to me, I'm going to remember you if you ever come to my book, <laughs> but like other people, they become like one person. But I remember one of my uh, readings in Detroit, um, I met a gentleman who said that he was on a task force um, with uh, Mayor Duggan, and that is what they're trying to figure out is like how they can try to like create zones within the city that um to figure out areas that it's just like there's only one like real like sort of like family in this area and what what to do about that and how to kind of consolidate um i think that it's something that is not necessarily that um not as easy as it sounds and also probably is not as like maybe politically as palatable as it, it needs to be to like happen um but it is something that I think needs to happen. I wanted to, I wanted to say one more thing about infrastructure and the way that uh, younger people, no shade to you, Taryn. Taryn ain't even um, young no more, so that's okay. not, she, she shouldn't. You know what, Gene? When, no, when I see you on say I'm going to knuckle up, we're going to fight. The other thing is when you have this sort of like, you know, hyper-educated population, a lot of the concerns, like the concerns of uh, Swatu's mother and like, you know, trash collection, they're not immediate like the infrastructure concerns it's like i don't oh i have little kids right now i don't have you know teenagers right now i'm not worried about can they take the bus places by themselves because that's like a ways away Mm. so i can sort of wait until the city gets that part of its act together because i'm not i'm not there yet so we're moving away from policy for a second t's moving Mm. to to detroit next week what should she holler at when she gets there well if you live in an eastern market area you got um some fantastic food places over there, Sapinos, Pizza Place. Okay. Uh, City Wings is not far from there in the New Center area. Um, mm-hmm. So from what I've, and I haven't experienced all of it, but I, from what I understand, like the food is just, you know, that's one of the first things that has really started to bloom in Detroit is like all these new restaurants and things like that. Have you ever been, have you ever heard of this place called Cutters, Sawatu? Cutters? No. Oh, okay, it's like Eastern Market. It's like a little oh. cat daddy joint. It's um... of course, so of course, Taryn is there, of course. <laughs> right. But um, a friend of a friend brought me there, and it was just like a little hole in the wall, like a black hole in the wall um, bar. 
And they had this thing called a shrimp potato with like shrimp and broccoli inside a baked potato with like cheese on it. <laughs> oh man, like these people are geniuses. <laughs> how would you how would you idea cat that in Detroit? Because I feel like in my head, Detroit well, clothing is like I mean just every your baseline is just cat daddy attire. A red <laughs> pinstripe suit. Yeah, that's just cat daddy no, wear. That's right? people actually wear that stuff. That's so what I'm saying. So you how would you and look in storefronts and see like Oh, that's Carol a, a fair That's what I'm saying. Like, how would you how would you be able to tell somebody like, oh, this is just a to regular me, cat? Going a cat daddy is a man who is like over. Well, I'm 30 now, so 40 is not like not that old. But, but you're like doing the Jay Z age inflation thing. What? No, I'm just saying. I'm like, dang, like now. <laughs> cat daddy is a man who is 40 plus, but wears like church outfits or like zoot suits, and like has like a little white towel on his shoulder in the summertime and the little Bluetooth or maybe the one that like hangs around his neck, you know, like, the ones that are around your neck now. Mm. The um, jeans are kind of like wide leg and creased real aggressively. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. yes. And the shirt is tucked into the jeans with a belt. But yeah, I mean... I feel like yeah. Detroit probably has a higher per capita, like a <laughs> higher cat per daddies. capita of cat daddies. <laughs> well, I mean, every single man in my family is a cat daddy. Like my, <laughs> I mean, my, my Detroit side family. I mean, not every single one, but like my father hasn't lived there in my whole life. And he's he's definitely a cat daddy. He he has like summer kangles and winter kangles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that accessorize. Yeah, I Exactly. So, Watson, did you do you hang on to any of your cat daddy attire? Uh, no, I, I was a. Uh, we were like the preppy nerds. Like we wore Nautica collared shirts and and like rock rockport walking shoes. Like oh, not, yeah. not even knowing that that was like for orthopedics for elderly people. <laughs> that was cool. So that's what we wore. That's uh, hilarious. And like we were always five years behind everybody else. So we were like wearing guest jeans in high school and like used and damaged and all this other stuff so did you have one of those like intricate leathers like with the swirly like embroidery yes, patterns on them did you <laughs> no. or racing, um... i had triple fat goose and like uh, uh. i don't think i had an eight ball jacket but they were um all that stuff was finally remembered one of the things when i first like the first time i went to detroit um I was so excited about this. I saw the building that Martin shot in front of. Like, they, they shot oh, yeah. in L.A., but I was, like, super excited, like, down off the Jefferson. The exterior, yeah. Yeah, Garden Court, I think is the name of it. Um, and Jefferson Avenue, where that building is, like, now it's all, like, hoity-toity. Mm-hmm. That used to be where, when you were in high school, it used to just, on the weekends, you would line, like, dudes would line their cars up and down the avenue and just get out their car and holler at women that were walking up and down the street. And that was just like the the teenage hangout spot was. Wait, were these like prostitutes or these are just no, like these are just girls who go like, there to like get yeah, chose? Get to, yeah, girl, <laughs> you would go with your girls. You would all get dressed up. Dudes oh, that would, sounds kind of fun. Go on their <laughs> and, you know, be hollering at you from their car. Oh, oh street harassment. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, CG. You got to meet people. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. I think yeah. you should look forward to it. It sounds like um, you're going there to do good. You know, I should put you in touch with like the church I was talking about because they do a lot of community <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it, and they'll give you some fascinating history about the the city and kind of like give you they're they're definitely of the people of the people of the original people. So sounds like he knows where you can get your hair done too, Tara. He's my mom. See? Well, See, look at that. Look at that. You I don't have got... any hair, so I have. A, I actually already have a barber in Detroit. You want to shout your mom's salon right down to watch her? From the neck up on uh, Seven Ooh. Mile Road. Best braider in the contiguous United States. <laughs> yes.
if you're a Detroiter or um, you have concerns about preserving the essence of this great black city, this great American city, holler us at Post Bougie on Twitter. You can follow Sawasu Moore on Twitter at Monkey Spooner, Monkey Spooner, all one word. You can follow Angela Flournoy at Angela Flournoy. That's A-N-G-E-L-A-F-L-O-U-R-N-O-Y. Did I spell that right? Yeah, good job. Her debut novel, uh, The Turner House, is out right now. Go pick it up. Um, you can follow Taryn. Wait, Jean, don't give mine out because I kind of like, I like to be able to operate under a pseudo cloak. What are you talking about? Taryn LaBeja. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's stupid. No. I'm going to give you the Twitter out because that's ridiculous. Um, pseudo cloak. Um, you can follow. <laughs> Jean, why don't you respect my witches? Anyway. That is violence. That's oh erasure. <laughs> erasure. Um, Y'all better stop. Jean um, Lamont Dindy. Wait, Jean, your middle name is Lamont? No, 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 it's not. Terrible, <laughs> I was about to say. Lamont. Uh. If my middle name was Lamont, I would, I mean, I feel like you like, you are required by law to be a cat that is at some point. Like, I feel like I would have to. <laughs> yeah. You gotta have some toothpicks, like, in your mouth at any time. Yeah. What's good, Red? You're looking good, Red? Mm-mm. <laughs> This took a turn. Gene, do the outro. Um, you can follow Taryn at Dope Reads, D-O-P-E-R-E. Not as well, Dope Reads, come on. And you can follow me at G-E-E-D-E-E-215 on behalf of my lovely guests and the larger post Bougie family. Uh, we will see you next week. Be easy. Our theme music is Nick's Groove by The Foreign Exchange. And shout-outs to our podcast producer, Channing Kennedy. Holler at us and sign up for our newsletter at postbougie.com.